you've got to somehow constantly stay ahead of the game. You can't just be lazily floating down the river. We are here today with David Schottenstein, and uh, I'm going to just do your official bio here. At the age of 21, David founded Aster and Black, which quickly became the first fastest growing custom clothing company in the United States. He has been named Entrepreneur of the Year in 2009 by Ernst & Young and was on the Inc.'s 30 Under 30 list in 2010. He founded Viewable in 2012 with Professor Alan Dershowitz and a childhood friend, which was acquired by Miratech just two years later. David is an active investor in a number of successful startups and businesses. Today, he is leading Privé Riveau, a luxury eyewear company he launched in 2017 with an elite team that included celebrity partners, Jamie Foxx, Ashley Benson, and Haley Steinfeld. In February 2020, Safilo Group, a leader in the global eyewear space, acquired a majority stake in the business, valuing young business at over $100 million before its third birthday. David. Yeah, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> well, you should be. You should be. I mean, I know that you, you know, you, you kind of say that, but you know, you've done a lot in a young and a short amount of time. It's impressive. You know, if they put, if they, uh, if they actually put all the failures in there, all the failed investments and the failed businesses and bad ideas, that bio would read a hell of a lot longer. But well, we'll get to that. You know, we'll get to yeah, that. Yeah, so we could talk about those two. That's uh, definitely something that you know I think people want to hear about. It's not all success, right? It's not all easy. But you know, you have accomplished a lot, and you know, I think that's kind of one of the things that I've always been just really attracted to and and impressed by is just kind of like your what seems like an intuitive sense of just kind of getting after and not letting fear and failure kind of get in your way. Um, I don't know. Is that true? That is very true. I think the the key. Uh, trait that any successful entrepreneur possesses or really needs to possess is grit and persistence. I mentioned, I, you know, I, I was somewhat facetious. I'm, I'm certainly proud of my accomplishments, but I'm even more proud of the fact that I got past a lot of the failures and the things that didn't work out and just moved right on. You know, it's like, it, it's not, you know, there's all these cliches. It's not about whether you get knocked down. It's about whether you get back up, et cetera, et cetera. And I found in, in, in my uh, uh, somewhat lengthy uh, career in business that it's all about uh, having the written persistence to keep moving forward. Yeah. And so where do you think that comes from? I mean, is that, you know, I, I, my assessment is like, it seems like, a, like it's in your DNA, like it's just kind of who you are. But, but, you know, where does that kind of like willingness to even jump into the fire in the first place Come from? Do you do you have a sense of that? I mean, you know, I look. At, I I grew up in a in a in an environment which really um, championed entrepreneurship and championed uh, constantly having business on the mind. Um, my mom is one of the most persistent, aggressive human beings I know, and uh, nothing stops that woman. Nothing. I mean, literally nothing. She's Moroccan, so she's feisty to begin with. Then. On top of it, she's just a bulldozer, and I feel like I get I get the persistence grit part from her, no question. The inability to take no for an answer, and in business, every 
every conversation somehow leads back to business. Unless it's, you know, Shabbos, then we're, of course, my dad's like, you can't talk about business on Shabbos on the Sabbath. Don't talk about business. But um, other than that, it's all business. So, uh, you know, maybe a good place to start with where I kind of got this uh, business bug, if you will, is, you know, how yep. I grew up. Yep. Great. You know, that's kind of the the flow of this podcast is to really let people hear the full story and, you know, have them learn from that kind of going all the way to the beginning. So yeah, let's let's start there. Tell me a little bit about kind of the early childhood life. Sure. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My uh, I have an older brother, three younger sisters. My parents were very religious. My dad continuously becoming more and more religious. So it was like a constant evolution till this day. He's constantly uh, discovering new stringencies and new things to take upon himself in his uh, Jewish life. Uh, and but, but that's sorry up, to interrupt you, but it's interesting uh, because you know I kind of know your your dad and kind of his you know most I don't know maybe over the last you know. 10 years or so, that kind of state. But are you saying when you were little, he wasn't quite as observant as, as he is now? I mean, what 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 does that he mean? What did that no. look like? I mean, he yeah. he was, he definitely was. He just, he he didn't know as much. As he kept on learning more, he uh, just kept on kind of take, taking more upon himself. But he he was very, he had, you know, he, he grew up in Columbus as part of the, the big Palestinian family and they always considered themselves Orthodox. But the definition of orthodox can be interpreted in many different ways, right? So he grew up orthodox meant you parked your car three blocks from synagogue on Saturday and then you walk three blocks instead of driving all the way to synagogue. Today, orthodox, when we say orthodox, it means something very different. It's much more stringent than that. It's, you know, uh, no phone, no TV, uh, no cars on the Sabbath. It's complete kosher. So kosher in the home, kosher out of the home only eat at restaurants that are certified kosher, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list, trust me, the list goes on and on. I grew up um, really not liking that. You know, I, I, the way I, I, I was saying the other day, uh, I was being interviewed by an Orthodox Jewish magazine and they were asking about my religious observance. And I said, look, if I raise you on, if you're being raised as a little kid and I gave you foie gras, and it was the best foie gras in the world. I mean, made by, you know, a Michelin-starred chef. But I kept on shoving it down your throat and force-feeding it to you. I don't care how good the foie gras is. You're going to fucking hate foie gras. You are going to hate foie gras. But, right? So, so if, if, you're, if, if, if you eat foie gras for the first time when you're on a trip in Paris and you're with a beautiful date and you're drinking copious amounts of delicious wine and you start feeding each other, each other foie gras, you're going to love foie gras. It could be the exact same dish. So to me, religion is similar to that foie gras. It could be fantastic and have all the greatest attributes in the world, but if you shove it down someone's throat, it gets regurgitated. So that's what happened with me. Yeah. So that's what happened with you. So, so your, your household, uh, not only, you know, you're describing it as like an evolving, like it's getting more stringent, but it's also now being kind of pushed upon you. And and how old are you at that? Like how old? Like what? How old were you at when when you started to feel that? You know, like so I started feeling it at around, at really honestly, at a, at a very young age. At five, six years old, I was already sneaking, you know, sneaking candies home from birthday parties where I wasn't supposed to eat the ice cream or the candy because it didn't meet our standard of kosher. 
I, I would be eating it anyway. So I, I was already like, you know, I'm doing my thing. There were things I loved about it. I loved Friday night that my family had this beautiful Shabbos, you know, Sabbath dinner. I love that. And, and the fact that we were all eating this great food and going to shul was fun and the holidays were fun, Hanukkah and Purim. There were things about it that I loved. But then there were things about it that I really didn't like. So around 13, 14, I really said, all right, I'm checking out. I'm going to go get myself a BLT at Wendy's, which is very not kosher. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go out Friday night after we have Shabbos dinner. I'm going to go sneak out of the basement back door, go meet up with a bunch of friends and go to parties and, you know, with Bexley friends. And I'm doing my thing and hook up with girls and all that fun stuff. And I had a great time and I loved it and I enjoyed it. And what, and my parents were very cool about it. Like my dad didn't get angry. My dad's approach was always, you know, if you don't have, if you don't want to be this religious, fine. I'm not going to fight with you about it, but you still have to have goals. Even if you want to check out on the religion part, you can't become like, you, you can't check out on everything and you need to have goals in your life. And the goal, you know, let's, let's establish what your goal is. So at the time, I think I said, I want to go to Harvard Law School. So my dad said, fine, then your goal is to go to Harvard Law School. You need to apply yourself hundred percent in, you know, in all, in school, et cetera. You need to really apply yourself if, if that's your goal. So I always remained very close to my parents. Around that age is when I really started to get into business too. I started trading stocks initially. I was able to convince the family stockbroker that I had permission to trade on my custodian account. And I started- Let me, uh, let me just back yeah. up before you go into that. So, so your dad then kind of, was it like a reluctant shift where he just said, you know, yes. okay, fine. Yeah. Um, some kind of like- uh, Maybe I mean I don't know if you guys have talked about this later in life and thinking about your own kids, but was it was it an understanding that maybe you just needed to kind of like get this out of you, go on your path, or was he it, just kind of like resigned? I don't know what to do. I think it was more that my dad's a really smart person, both you know he's on a book level and just you know his EQ is really high. He's a very emotionally smart individual, and he basically realized that. You know, the metaphor I gave you before about shoving foie gras down someone's throat, I think he realized mm -hmm. that that's what was happening and that mm -hmm. his uh, method wasn't resonating with me. So he, he was smart. He kind of backed off. He said, okay, let's still have goals. And in terms of the religious stuff, be respectful of, of mom and I. So, you know, you're not, you know, you're not doing things right in our face that are, or in front of your sisters that are, you know, not in line with our values. Uh, but I think he realized that I would probably rediscover it on my own, which is exactly what ended up happening. Yeah. And so and so you're um so you're you're starting to trade the family stock account and and is this is this your your parents? Like whose account is this that you're no, now I, getting so access a, to? And how old I were you? Just, I was so the first time I got access to it, I think I was 12 or 13. And <laughs> I had um it was the it was my own custodian account. So it was I had like a, a uh, trust account. And I knew there was money in it. And I started buying. I remember the first stock I bought was an internet company called Excite, E-X-C-I-T-E, -E, which eventually got bought out. And then I started trading in a, um, I, would, I, I was a voracious reader. So I was reading all these business publications. My dad gave me books on stocks at a young age. So I already knew about options. I already knew about all that stuff. And I started buying. I remember I bought a company called Immunex, uh, which then got bought by Amgen. And I was trading. and. I was, you know, I was, uh, was pretty good at it. Uh, when my father found out, he was livid. 
Uh, he was happy that I was trading stock. He was livid that the brokers had had uh, bought the whole spiel I gave them about ha- having my dad's permission to do it. Then uh, when I was 13, my dad took me down to Florida for a week. He went to see our, our grandmother lived in Miami. So we went to see Grandma Jean. And when we were down there, he met an old friend for breakfast at a place called Bagel Time, like a little one of these old Miami bagel joints. And we're sitting there and this guy has an interesting business. He re- refurbishes ambulances from America and he sells them to South American countries. So I'm sitting there and the whole time he's chewing on a cigar, big cigar, Cuban cigar. And I'm sitting there watching him. And I said to him, this is when cigars were exploding. Like cigars were on the rise. I said to him, um, you, uh, where do you get those Cubans from? And we start schmoozing. And my, you know, my dad is, you know, doing, I don't know, he was on the phone call or whatever. And he tells me, you know, oh yeah, I have a great source for Cuban cigars. And I said to him, what do you sell a box of Cubans for? And he was a bit surprised that this 13 year old knows anything about Cuban cigars. Anyways, we start schmoozing, we start, uh, we start wheeling and dealing, and I start a relationship, a, a business relationship with this guy. I'm buying boxes, Cohiba, Lindidos, Churchill's, you name it, and I'm selling them all over Columbus. So I'm selling them to members of the Casto organization, who my dad did business with. I'm selling them to members of the dispatch printing company. I'm selling them to all sorts of people, and I'm talking about everyone. My dad has no idea, right? No clue. And how are this you doing on. it? Are you you're you're on the phone with these guys? You're yeah. Are you, I'm sending are you, them. I'm, I'm 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 on the phone. I'm I'm going down to my dad's office. I'm going through his Rolodex. I'm calling people uh-huh. up. I'm saying, hey, you know, are you into cigars? And and um, they're like, yeah. You're just hustling. Assumes, I mean, you're a 13 year old hustler. Yeah. Everyone assumes my dad knows because how am I calling them if my dad doesn't know about it? Right. right? So maybe even I'm they're buying, buying in part because they think you know oh, I'll support this kid, but. Meanwhile, you've got Cohibas, so you know. Yeah, all right, I'm giving, I, I'm bringing them a product they, they can't get elsewhere, and I'm selling right. it at a really fair price, right? So I'm okay. selling, selling like crazy. I'm getting paid in cash. I'm paying the, my guy with cash. You know, sending down literally sending down USPS envelopes stuffed with cash to this guy, right? So then, okay, so then what ended up happening was around 15, I came back to Orthodox Judaism on my own. I saw. So, you know, certain things that I, that I missed, that I loved, that I felt like, okay, you know what? This makes sense. This makes sense. I kind of had, I, I kind of started to come back to it on my own, on my own terms. And when I say on my own terms, not my dad's approach, a much more, a much looser approach, I guess is what you'd say. You know, uh, anyone who knows me till today would never describe me as like some super stringent, uptight, Orthodox Jewish person. I mean, you know me, it's just not me, but right. I, I, Certain things like Shabbos, keeping the Sabbath, kosher, there's certain things you know, that resonated with me and I started getting back into it. And I decided I wanted to go away to uh, yeshiva, which is like out of town, Orthodox Jewish boarding school, basically, like parochial school. So first one I went to is in Los Angeles. I got kicked out after nine months. Then I went to one in... Whoa, so whoa, even like, What did you do to get kicked out? Uh, I bought a car. I was... I didn't have a driver's license. I was 15. I bought a car from an Israeli used car dealer with $500 cash. I remember the thing said for parts only. It was a stick shift car. I didn't know how to drive stick shift either. And the guy taught me in the parking lot of his dealership how to drive it. I parked it a block away from the school. And every Saturday night, I take friends out. We go out. We get on the 405. We drive to Universal City. We drive to 
I'm 15 years old, driving with no uh-huh. license in Los Angeles. And one Saturday night, the car broke down in the middle of the 405. And uh, the principal couldn't find me. They were frantically looking for us. Anyways, long story short, yeah. they actually never, they never even discovered what happened. They just knew I was off campus for an extended period of time. After nine months, the principal called parents up and he's like, look, I don't have anything concrete that I can kick your son out for, but I would really appreciate it if you don't send him back. Like, please, I'm begging you. <laughs> please don't send him back. So uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> my parent, my, my, so my dad was like, are you willing to not go back? And it was, it was like a negotiation. I was like, if I get all my credits, you know, fine. You know, I won't go back. And so they gave me my credits and um, I ended up going to school in Miami. I got kicked out of that after like a month. Then I was, then I was like reconsidering, do I want to be in Orthodox Jewish school? So then I get shipped off to Venice, Italy. And let me ask you something though, before you do this. So, you know, you, you, this kind of like, you know, you're getting kicked out of multiple schools, you you know, you're, you're kind of wrestling with the kind of observance piece, you know, yet, Mm -hmm. you know, would you describe the kind of like, you know, getting in trouble and, and, you know, acting out, doing the kind of stuff. It's just like normal teenage angst or was it like something else that kind of you you feel like, you know, was going on there? It's hard to say because I feel like, yes, there's definitely teenage, you know, there's definitely that normal teenage angst. But by the same token, my personality was definitely uh, religious or not religious. I was rambunctious and had an issue with rules period you know i just was i i probably had some add too um but i was bouncing all over the place i don't well, think it was yeah yeah i mean the reason i asked is because you know i know you now and you know you're like an adult version of that still meaning like you're still a little rambunctious right like you still don't follow all the rules, right? You kind of still like make your own way. And, and I say that, you know, in a, in a, in the highest, you know, regard, like I, I think that is part of your secret sauce towards being successful, both in work and life, you know, that you're going to have fun with this whole thing and not necessarily fall into the societal norms or the whatever else. Like that's just kind of part of who you are, at least as I know you. It, for sure. I mean, if you speak to my wife, it's the single, it's the characteristic she lo- she loves the most about me, but also hates the most about me. It, it can oh, yeah. totally go either way. Right. Married for seven, married for seventeen years, she's definitely got a lot of stories to tell. But yeah, it, it's a it's a personality thing, you know. And um, I see it, uh, I see it peppered throughout my family for sure. So it seems like it's definitely in the DNA. But yeah, I mean, I. I Parochial school has a lot of rules. Uh, the one in Venice, thank God, had uh, way less rules. Um, mm-hmm. I do think it's important to point out because this will play into later, you know, the conversation later about parenting. My dad had a very interesting approach uh, when it came to us in terms of the mindset we were raised with. We always thought we were like not poor, but we thought my dad worked for my uncle. We thought that. My dad was like some schlepper. We thought my dad was my uncle's schlepper. My mm-hmm. uncle, you know, my uncle lived in a really, you know, beautiful house and drove nice cars. My dad always had a shit car. You know, we lived in it. We lived in a very nice house, but relatively speaking, it was very modest. You know, my dad always raised us to believe that we were just okay. And, you know, that mindset, I grew up with 
a lot of cousins who were certainly more than just okay. You know, and they, I remember they'd be going on vacations to like Europe or Hawaii or whatever. And my dad was taking us on a vacation to Pittsburgh, you know? So mm. it was like, um, yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because you know, I think look, the, the Schottenstein name is well known and often associated with wealth. And, and you know, as you were talking about kind of trading your custodial account, you know, there could be this, you know, belief that, you know, you're some young, you know, rich kid trading stocks, which which really wasn't at all how you were raised or no. led to believe, you know, at all. So, not at all. Not at all. We were we were really raised to believe that we did not have that much. And growing up with all these people who did have lots of shit, it was like it kind of created a certain fire in me. Like, you know, I wanted to be able to go to, to Barney's and buy nice suits, and I wanted to be able to go on nice vacations, and I wanted to stay at nice hotels. I remember my dad took me on a surprise trip once to Las Vegas to the real estate convention when I was eleven. And we stayed at like the shittiest hotel. I can't even explain. And I remember like our family members were there at the same time. They're all staying at the time at like the Mirage, Caesars. Uh-huh. We were staying at literally such a shithole. I can't even explain. And I remember thinking to myself, next time I come to Vegas, I'm not staying in this shithole. I'm going to make sure I can stay in a nice place. So mm-hmm. I had that fire in me. And I think that's what led to the hustle. And when I'm in Venice, I'm still selling cigars. Now I've just got a couple of runners who go to Tour Academy in Columbus. I'm in Venice, Italy, and I've got a couple of runners who are doing my deliveries for me all over downtown Columbus. And um, I remember one of them was Phil Phil Kahn, a buddy of mine who today is an accountant in, in uh, Baltimore. Uh, and uh, and he works for Deloitte too. So that's like really and, funny. and are you just like are you just that is funny? Are you just like kind of like making shit up as you go? You're like, all right, I'm in Venice. I got to keep this thing going. I mean, you don't know the concept of a runner or anything like that at that age. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, just I'm figuring yeah. I'm, I'm figuring it out. Yeah, I'm, but I'm you have out. clearly like a, a an intuitive sense. I mean, this kind of we'll get into this as we get into the business piece. But again, part of your DNA is just like intuitively like figuring shit out, hustling, making it happen. Yeah, the, for sure. To some extent, it definitely is DNA. There's no question. Mm-hmm. My dad was sitting in a meeting that year, a little like midway through that year. He's sitting in a meeting, and one of the guys from Casto says, Hey, have you talked to David lately? My dad's like, Yeah, he's in Venice. He's like, Can you let him know that I'm low on uh, Esplendidos? My father's like, Come again? And he's like, Yeah, I- I'm-, I'm fresh out of Esplendidos, and you know, my Monte Cristo. And my dad's like, What? And he starts telling my dad, He's been buying cigars for me for the past like two years. My dad had no idea. And it was another one of those moments where he flipped out, but he was also very proud of me. So he was like, am I angry or am I proud? I can't figure it out. Yeah, Anyways, <laughs> so he shut, he shut me down and he said, um, he said, look, no more business. I want you to focus on school. And uh, after, you know, you have plenty of your whole life ahead of you to do business. Now you got to focus on school. So that's what I did. I focused on school the next few years. I didn't do any business. And I went. I was in Venice for a year and a half. Then I went to New York for a couple of years. Uh, I met my wife, Ida. I actually met Ida when I was 16. Which at the time, she thought I was 12. And a few years later, post-puberty, we met again. And she then you know, was willing to go out with me. And uh, we got married at 19. So married at 19. I had my first kid, at my son, Ari, at 20. and. Uh, you know, that, that, yeah. 
that's that's when I really got into business. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about getting married at 19 before we hop into the business stuff. You know, the the kind of I'm imagining the world that you're living in, you know, having had that experience, you know, uh you know, in, in in Venice, maybe you know, and growing up, that was more common than in probably most people understand or realize. What was it like for you? Was it was it a feeling that like you were supposed to do this? Um, no, you know, no, no. yeah. So, talk so, talk about so that. Orthodox Jewish world, the girls get married younger than the boys. So girls could start going out for marriage in 1920, right? Boys are generally not looking into this, not even considered for that until 23, 24, you know, a little bit older. 19 is very young. In, in, the, in the Orthodox Jewish world, 19 is considered super young. In the normal world, it's considered like a baby. You're supposed to be getting shit-faced in college at that point. So, right. so what happened was my wife was 19, very mature. I was 19, very immature. But we, we, you know, we hit it off and we were dating in New York and I'm in school. And my wife said to me, I'm thinking we'll date for like five years. And maybe if this works out when I'm like 24, 25, and maybe at that point, I'll be ready to get married. My wife was not interested in dating for like five years. She said to me, you know, there was like after like six months of dating, she's like, look, I just want you to understand. I'm, you know, 19 turning 20. I'm like kind of ready to settle down. You know, I'm, I'm looking to get married at some point soon. I'm not looking to date forever. So if that's what you're thinking, you know, just want to give you a heads up. I'm not going to be waiting, you know, I'm not going to be waiting around for you like that. So it was kind of like a come to Jesus moment, mm-hmm. probably, probably the wrong term for an Orthodox Jewish kid. But, um, <laughs> but I, I basically, I basically, I said to myself, look, you're not ready to get married by any stretch. And in anyone's judgment, you're not ready to get married, but you're never going to do close to this good. Like I was already way out kicking my coverage. So being, you know, somewhat smart, I decided that even if you're not ready, this is the rest of your life you're talking about. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. And I said, fuck it. Um, This is the right move. Well, and, and, you know, look, 17 years later and knowing Ida, you absolutely made the right move. But, you know, look, I got married in what I think is, you know, today, uh, very young. I was married at 24. I met Katie when I was 20. So, you know, I know what it's like to be young and making some pretty serious commitments. And, you know, soon after you start having kids and getting into business, you know, what was it like? Was it was it hard to kind of navigate all of that, knowing that you're still young, you know, and and not totally settled in in who you are in, in life? It was it was definitely uh, an adjustment. I think the first year there was a lot of adjusting going on uh, in terms of having to now you know I'm going to have a baby, support a family. I didn't want to you know at that point already we realized that my father did not work for my uncle and that we did have money. Uh, but at, at, even despite that, I was like dead set on I don't want to take money from my family. I want to do my own thing. So. The business part wasn't so scary. I wasn't scared at all because I had already been doing business and I was dying to get back into business. Right. Um, my time in Venice, I had already had the seedlings of an idea for what I wanted to do in terms of going into the clothing industry and men's custom clothing in particular. Um, so that part wasn't so scary. I think the part that was scary was like 
I'm going to, I could, you know, I could potentially have a kid soon. You know, I can't rent a car. I can't buy alcohol for Sabbath. When I have to go to the Bexley kosher market to buy wine, my mom had to call in advance to ask Herb Shamus to sell me the wine, even though I wasn't 21, mm-hmm. you know, like, but I could have a baby. I could, I could bring a human life. And it was like insane, you know? Right. So that part was scary, but I think, you know, Ida, my wife really uh, brought a a certain sense of maturity and sensibility uh, into Mm -hmm. the relationship that, you know, I guess compensated for whatever I was lacking in those areas. Yeah. But but in the the business, business side, I was, I was ready to roll. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. So, you know, you mentioned that you've got this kind of like, uh, idea brewing in Venice for the custom clothing. Talk about kind of where the idea originally came from. So um, I was sitting in Venice and this kid walked into um, into a class wearing this beautiful shirt. It was like a gorgeous tailored shirt. And at the time I was in Venice, you know, I had money I was making for my cigars, whatever. And I was going to all the really high-end boutiques and I was buying like Palzoleri Canali shirts, you know, and they were like at the time probably, you know, it was in Lira at the time, but it was like 150 bucks for a shirt and which was a fortune. And this kid walks in wearing these gorgeous shirts. They fit him beautifully. I see what they're custom made. And I said, where are those from? So, oh, there's this Hong Kong tailor that comes through Montreal where he lived and we get them for like 40 bucks a shirt. And I was like, what? I was going nuts, right? Because 40 bucks a shirt. And he's like, yeah, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. You have to go see him in this hotel room where he stays. And it's a little weird. And you go through fabrics. And then he ships them to you in like a brown paper package. But the shirts are great. So um, when school was out, I went to actually see this tailor. And I bought a bunch of shirts. And I remember thinking the product is great. The quality is great. But the process was horrible. So I started telling myself, what if I could hook up with some of these Hong Kong tailors and bring that great product to the U.S. market, but with a local sales force that really delivered a first-class experience and a luxury experience. And instead of having the name of uh, Deswani Tailors or whatever Hong Kong name, you know, there's no branding. I could create a brand that actually stood for something and meant something, and people identified as luxury. So. That was my idea at 16. In, ni- in 19, I brought it into fruition. I went to Hong Kong. I hooked up with a few different tailors there. Um, and, uh, you know, I-, I started Astrum Black. And the name really just came from, I wanted to create a name that sounded super waspy and like it had been around for a long time, you know, like very mm-hmm. non Jewish, uh, like mm-hmm. Aster, Aster and Black, like Thomas Pink, you know, like. Right. like and when people heard the name and they saw the logo, they were like, yeah. oh, yeah, that, that brand has been around for like, it's, it's like uh, been around for a couple hundred years. You know, it's like an old yeah. Savile Row brand. So that was exactly what I wanted to accomplish. And then when I came out with the pricing, the only competition at the time was Tom James, which was this mm-hmm. company that had been around for forever, making their suits in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, very overpriced, half decent product. You know, they charge extra money for like functional buttonholes on the sleeves and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I came in with a, a price point that just, you know, blew them out of the water. And yeah, it, and, and, it's it's yeah. a an interesting thing when you mentioned Tom James because I my first job was in banking. Uh, I worked at Huntington Bank out of college, and the Tom James guys would come through the bank. 
And I didn't have enough money to be buying custom suits. And I didn't even know what it cost. I just, in my mind, thought it was like, you know, not something I could do. Um, but it was a thing. And it was these very kind of like, old, it was a very old fashioned kind of conservative, yeah. Yeah. like yeah. nothing sexy about it kind of approach to a suit. Like you need a suit. I mean, you know, suits even then, I don't think the fashion was really kind of in the in the industry at all. And you know what what you brought was you, you know you mentioned the name, but you brought um, a sense of kind of like fashion to it, youth energy. I think it was part of like how your youth was really serving you. Your your you know there's we, we often talk about like you know kind of um, experience. In this case, the fact that you were younger. And not in this industry, 20, 30 years really served you well because you brought a whole new approach to it. So uh, Entourage was a big show at the time and when I first started. And uh, I remember customers were saying, oh, you're the Ari Gold of the suit industry. It was like a certain, certain fast, badass type of edge we brought to a very stodgy, boring industry. And people love that. And we were making our suits based off of what they saw in GQ, what they saw. We were literally copying. People would tear out ads and say, I want this, I want this. And Tom James wasn't doing that. And you know that plus the price point. You know, I went to hire my first batch of salespeople. I hired some beautiful young girls to come on board and work for me in New York and other places. And next thing I know, we were making suits for all the Ohio State Buckeyes going into the NFL draft. And then we're making suits for all their teammates once they get in the NFL. And then we're making suits for NBA players and so on and so forth. And we really built a business where the business people felt like this is a real brand. They've got everybody big wearing their suits. But, you know, the 2011 NFL draft, 23 of the 25 top picks are wearing Astro and black suits in, in the green room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so the business people are now wanting to wear this product because they see, oh, these guys have like a real thing going. And um, that was something we did really well, creating the brand, which is something that I'm very passionate about until today. So creating that buzz, that excitement, we always constantly had great PR on the business. There was always excitement around the business. And, um, you know, we, we continued building on that and the business continued to mature until ultimately 2011, uh, we were approached by a a number of different private equity groups that wanted to come in and buy the business. Yeah. Talk about, you know, we opened up talking about, you know, your success and, you know, you were quick to point out the failures. Talk a little bit about the challenges because, you know, from what I remember, you know, it it was like a very, very explosive business that, you know, materialized into an, an awesome exit, but it was hard. You were, you had never done any of that before. Yes, you'd been, you know, in business in some way since you were, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, but like, this is a whole new thing. Now you had a huge team. I mean, talk a little yeah. bit about kind of the challenges with that. The, the biggest challenges were being young and having zero patience. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do everything right away. There was no time to like develop a proper game plan. There was no time to vet factories. I, I did things that were so insane. Like I, I got in an argument with our manufacturer who was already questionable on the quality. We had a lot of fit issues. I'm sure you remember stuff would come in and be tight under the armholes. So mm-hmm. uh, we got, I got in an argument with one of the manufacturers. I overnight, overnight 
flipped off all the orders going to one manufacturer, switched them to a new manufacturer who I had not done any testing with, none. So I literally just switched to this new manufacturer and the next, every single order that came for like the next four months did not fit the customers. Every single order. Like it was these rash, stupid decisions where there was just a total lack of patience, a total lack of thinking about what will the consequences be of this decision, right? And those were my biggest challenges. It was always, you know, just rushing to do something instead of taking the time to really lay out a a well thought out plan. Um, You know, so we had quality challenges, delivery challenges, uh, personnel challenges, you know, again, hiring people on a whim without doing proper background checks. You know, we hired one guy, we found out after like six months, the guy was wanted in like seven states, you know? So like (laughs) we had, we had our share of issues and that's part of the downside of being 22, 23, building a fast growing business. But, uh, you know, I, I, I learned as I went along. And, and, and I remember, uh, some days where like on Shabbos, you know, you would like hand me your Palm Pilot and ask me to send a text message for you because you couldn't do it. Talk a little bit about like how you were balancing that part of your life too. You know, the the craziness of the business, the, you know, you know, being observant with your religion, your now young family, like, was it insane? It was. And it's interesting. Um, I'll talk about that specifically and I'll fast forward for a second. As I went on in business, I was always, I always managed to stick with the holidays, with Shabbos, with my religious observance. I didn't break any of it. I was really solid. I would get the babysitter to check my phone for me, which I shouldn't have been doing, but I wouldn't check it myself. What ended up happening eventually, after I sold the company, funny enough, which is when you, when you would think I would have had more peace of mind because now I got a bunch of money in my pocket right? and I would have been more settled. It, it, it did not, it didn't happen that way. As I increased my investing and my investments and I started another startup, my anxiety continuously ramped up and I continuously became more anxious to the point where I was sneaking off into the bathroom on, on the Sabbath, locking the door, saying I had stomach issues, sitting on my phone, checking my phone, which was a big no-no. Mm-hmm. And my wife is really smart. And she's like, there's no way. At first, you know, first it was like, oh, I hope you feel better. The second or third time it was like, okay, I know what you're doing in there. You know, there's no way you've got that much diarrhea and that consistently. So eventually my, my wife didn't get angry. My wife said, you know, I feel bad for you. Like I, I actually mm-hmm. pity, I, I pity you that you can't enjoy the Sabbath and you can't enjoy the, the holidays and the time with family when you're supposed to be off the grid and off your phone. You're sitting there on your phone, checking your phone. Right. And it's just your anxiety. And there's nothing that urgent. There's nothing that time sensitive. Like, you know, you're just, you're a slave to your phone and you're a slave to, to work. And um, I realized she was right. And I started really working on it. I started really working on myself. And um, I got to. How did you go about doing that? So I went and I spoke to someone about my anxiety mm-hmm. and, um, you know, an anxiety specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually started speaking to my rabbi here or my Lipsker, very mm-hmm. smart, very smart person who I love very much. And basically started working with me on, you know, kind of explaining to me, like, look, if you believe in God and if you believe, if you actually believe this stuff, which I do, you breaking Sabbath to be on your phone is not going to make you another dollar. You doing all this stuff is not going to 
make you any more money. You're just going to make yourself miserable. And I slowly came to that realization. I remember the first, like, so the first week when I actually put my phone on the charger and didn't touch it for 24 hours for the full Sabbath, by the end of Sabbath, I was literally like breaking onto a cold sweat, wanting mm-hmm. to check my phone, right? I, mm-hmm. It was like an addiction. It was really yeah. an addiction. Yeah. Subsequently, it became easier and easier to the point now where the Sabbath will end Saturday night. And I, I won't even check my phone till like four hours after the Sabbath ends. Mm-hmm. I won't even like look at it. I'm not even now. Now I, I, I love being off my phone. I love yeah. the forced, the forced disconnect from the world, replugging and recharging, replugging myself in and ch- recharging my battery. And it's like now I can't. It's I can't even explain how much I look forward to Friday night and Saturday day, or how much I look forward to the Jewish holidays when. I have to disconnect and I have to be, you know, plugged into my family, into my religion, into eating great food and drinking great wine. There's nothing not to love yeah. about it. And well, and that's like today, the, you know, the, that's like the key to, to any addiction is what you got to see what's on the other side and get that it's better than what you're doing. And Absolutely. so you really got to kind of feel the benefit of taking that, that detox outweighed you know, checking the checking your email. Um, yep. Interesting. Okay, so uh, before we move too far forward, I want to I want to hear kind of your thinking on the exit, the Astro and Black exit. You know, from my perspective, you've you've got this like exploding big huge company that that in in Columbus now had become your identity. You know, you mm-hmm. were known as. You know, we, we kind of mentioned it in the bio, you know, you're, you're on the list, you're winning the awards, you know, you're all around town, you're with the celebrities, the athletes, the key CEOs, right? You're the guy, you've got this hot, sexy company. And, you know, at a young age, that could be a hard thing to detach from. Tell me a little bit about the thinking on, on why you chose to do the deal you did. So what happened was I started looking around me and I started seeing shifting trends in the market. I remember. There's a guy that I uh, used, he's a customer, and I used to talk to him about, about anxiety and about business, a guy named Kurt Malkoff, who's a yep. big doctor, you know, big guy in Columbus. And yeah, it's great. Kurt, Kurt said to me, think about a river flowing down a river, and then at the end of the river, there's a huge waterfall. You need to somehow be in a bubble floating above that waterfall, floating ahead, and you can see where the drop off is, right? You've got to somehow, constantly stay ahead of the game. You can't just be lazily floating down the river. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm looking around. I see, first of all, China is opening up more and more. More and more people are going over to China and getting access directly to factories. I had a couple of key salespeople who had left and gone to do their own thing, right? Because they got access to their own factories in China. I also saw a company coming out at the time called Suit Supply, uh, which was just hitting US shores with these Beautiful, gorgeous, sexy ads, you know, naked women in the desert, beautiful suits and amazing marketing campaign, amazing. And I, I went into a store and I felt the product quality and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. The price point's amazing. So that started to scare me a little bit. And, and then around the same time, uh, I started getting approached by these private equity firms saying, you know, hey, we're interested in talking to you. So I, I went and spoke to my investment advisor at the time, and he said, look, it can't hurt to de-risk a little bit. You don't have to sell the whole company. Sell a big chunk of it. Put a bunch of money in your pocket if you're getting these great offers. 
and then continue. You'll bring in some outside help and continue trying to build it up and you'll make more money on the back end. You're never going to kick yourself for putting away this much money, right? You're never going to be angry at yourself for doing that. So I took that advice and I did the deal and uh, I sold 60% of the company. In a very short period of time, I realized that the guys who had bought 60% of the company from me were people that saw things. We did not see things the same way at all. They wanted to load. I, I did things very um, fiscally, you know, you could say I was a cheap ass. Um, you know, I, my offices weren't fancy. I didn't pay big salaries. You know, I wasn't looking to hire big name executives. They took a very different approach to all that stuff. So CapEx tripled within the first six months. And so I'm sitting there saying to myself, wait a second, this business was making five, six, you know, five million bucks a year. And I'm busting my ass going out selling suits myself every day, schlepping all over the place and doing it. Why am I doing that if these people are just pissing that money? You know, it's coming in one door and they're pissing it out the other door. So I really had a fundamental disagreement with them in terms of how they were running the business. They, uh, despite my protests, were very much determined to continue doing things the way they wanted to do them. And we got to a point really quickly where uh, it wasn't tenable for me to stick around. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to check out. I'm leaving. And they said, fine, there's the door. Exit's right there. There was no like, okay, let's reconsider. And I left. I resigned. Um, and I, I took How a summer off. How was that for you? It was pretty painful. Um, it, it, it hurt a lot. It felt like being separated kind of from my baby, you know. And I, I actually decided at the time, you know, I need a clean break. I'm going to move to Florida. I wanted to move to a more orthodox community where there was kosher restaurants and whatnot. So I decided to move to Miami where we already had a vacation home and I was very familiar with the community here, which that was also really painful. Leaving Columbus was very painful. I, I cried for a couple of days straight leaving Columbus. My parents, my good friends, my cousins. It was very, very painful. But I realized I had you know, three young kids. I knew I was going to have another one. I wanted to be in a community where I could raise my kids, my family with the quality of life, being able to have a, a great synagogue and, and, you know, restaurants, kosher restaurants to go to and all that kind of stuff. So we made the move to Florida. I took a summer off and went to uh, Israel and we spent the summer in Israel where I basically zipped around on a moped with my wife and kids all day and we toured and we did all sorts of cool stuff. And I think that summer was important because that summer I kind of started to realize that like, okay, you know, it's just a business, right? You can't become emotionally attached to a business. You become emotionally attached to your family. And a business is just the means of supporting your family and growing your leg- your financial comfort, but it's not something you become married to. And um, so, you know, that, that, that was kind of my, my mindset at the time. And I had already had another idea for another business, which I started at the time, which was a company called Swiss Stays, which was based on a patent I had received for an extendable collar stay. The things that go into your shirts, I patented uh, an extendable version of that little collar stay. So whatever size collar you were wearing, you could use the same collar, say, and extend it to fit the size of the collar. Uh, Turns out that it was a great idea and Brooks Brothers and Saks and everyone wanted to carry it and everyone loved it, but bad business idea because you have to sell a shitload of collar stays to create a sustainable business. 
And a one product business like that is just not sustainable. And I ended up selling it for you know pennies on the dollar to uh, someone who till today runs it as a kind of a, a little side thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I'm kind of curious, you know, because you can kind of get into you know what you're doing now. And I know you've got your hands in a number of things now, but you know you're you you've been focused on one in particular. You know how what is your process for kind of picking what it is you're going to commit to because. You know, one thing I know about you is that when you commit to something, you're all in. And right. and I mean, you'll you'll travel, you'll hustle, you'll work it, you know, you, you are you are working it and, and driving tons of value. How do you decide what it is you're gonna really uh, you know, kind of pick to, to do that with? So my criteria has changed over time. You know, when I when I was involved in Viewable. I, I went into Viewable not because I want I loved working with lawyers so much. I mean, nobody likes that. I, I went into it because I thought there could be a huge payday at the end. I realized after Viewable that my criteria needs to be there has the potential for you know real huge payday at the end for growing a real company, and you really need to enjoy what you're doing. Ideally, right? I, I was in a position at that point financially where I could afford to be choosy about what I did. But it needed to be a concept where I, I I could make a lot of money doing it and build something really special, and I could enjoy myself while I was doing it. And Viewable certainly didn't fit the criteria. When I was doing Viewable, I wanted to shoot myself on a daily basis. I mean, I hated it. So mm-hmm. once I moved past that, uh, you know, I realized that I needed to be involved in things that I really enjoyed. So that, that's my criteria in terms of choosing choosing what I throw myself into. Both both lucrative and fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and Rouveau, you know, the sunglasses business we started in 2017, that certainly fit the fit had, you know, fit both both those criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So talk a little bit about Prevé and kind of where you are with it. Um, yeah, sure. Share that so, story. Um, I one of the things I love doing is creating a brand and creating a brand around a product that's not too expensive. So a product that's affordable. And specifically, going into a segment of a mar- you know a market that is ripe for disruption, so where there's a lot of overpriced stuff being sold, and perhaps it's been done that way historically for whatever reason, and we can come in and shake it up. And um, on a trip to Israel, I do a trip to Israel every summer with Omri Caspi, where we take a bunch of athletes, NBA players, celebrities to Israel. So on one trip, we took Jeremy Piven, and he had a guy there named Dave Osakow, who was very close with Jamie Foxx and a bunch of other celebrities. And on that trip, we were talking about a bunch of different industries. And I had I had an investment in a company that bought uh, buyouts in the eyewear space. So they would buy buyouts on Tom Ford, Chanel, all this designer eyewear, and they'd sell it in the secondary market. They made a killing doing it because the margin was so crazy. So I was talking about that as being one of my investments. And um, I have since exited that investment successfully. But um, fast forward a few months, Jamie Foxx had this experience where he was going to open up a big club in Las Vegas. And um, he, on his way there, he realized he had forgotten the sunglasses. So he stops and he picks up a pair on the way and he, 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 he's getting on the jet. He's wearing these sunglasses and he posts in it. And everyone on Instagram went nuts. Oh, where are those from? Are they Gucci? Are they Ferragamo? Everyone who saw them went crazy, and he bought them for twelve dollars at a Chevron station. So he tells his guy, Davo, you know, Davo, I don't know 
I don't know what is here. Something to this, right? There's something here. And we got to, we got to figure it out. And, um, um, you know, there's a business to be done here. So Davo tells him, you know, I know a guy who I met on this Israel trip. He seems like a real hustler. And he was mentioning that he's got some investments in the eyewear space. Let's call him. His name is David Schottenstein. Or as Jamie says, Schottenstein. So, <laughs> so they call me up. And I remember I'm standing outside of a restaurant uh, with my wife. We're about to go in and I get a phone call. And it's like, Schottenstein. I'm like, yeah, who's this? It's Jamie Fox. And I'm like, yeah. I was like, fuck you. Who is it? He's like, uh-huh. oh, it's Jamie Fox. So I was like, oh, hey, Jay, what's up? And we start chatting. And he tells me this whole story. So I said to him, you know what? That's a great story. I agree. There might be something there. Give me a few days. Let me think about it. I start thinking about it. The wheels start turning. And I, I said to myself, you know, there's no brand out there where you can go buy a pair of sunglasses or glasses on the fly for like 25 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks. That's affordable, but that still is a brand. That's something you're not going to be embarrassed to be seen wearing, right? And the quality is great, et cetera. And then I started checking out what the cost to actually make the stuff was. And I realized you can, it can really be done. And that's how Purveyorvo was born. We got a group of celebrities together who are, who are all equity partners in the venture. Haley Steinfeld, Jamie Foxx, Jeremy Piven, Ashley Benson. We launched it in June of 2017. Every celebrity in Hollywood wears our sunglasses and our glasses. Everybody. And I'm talking about, we've got this huge following. And... Uh, you know, fast forward, we, we've done capsule collections with Adriana Lima. We've done capsule collections with uh, um, Nija. We've done, I mean. Talk a little bit about that because, you know, I think, you know, you have done something that's become quite kind of popular. But again, you know, I think this was a little bit uh, intuitive for you. I mean, you're making these celebrity partnerships, partnerships with influencers, you know, it's become kind of a norm thing, but you were a little bit, you know, on top of that trend. Uh, how, how, you know, tell me a little bit about your thinking there. So the thing with celebrities is if you use celebrities just to endorse the product, to me, that's a waste of time. If you can partner with the right celebrities who are passionate about what you're trying to do, my view, in my view, that's where there's value. That's where you really can do something special. And so that, that, that was my approach. I didn't want to bring celebrities on board who would just get paid some kind of flat fee and that's it. I needed people that were going to be invested in the process. And um, so that, that was my approach and, and uh, it worked. Uh, I think it was the right way to go. And uh, we were then, uh, if you fast forward to February 2020, about two and a half years after we launched, um, Safalo, which is one of the largest uh, players in the eyewear industry, uh, approached us about uh, doing a buyout. And they bought a majority interest in the company. And um, th- over the next three years, they uh, each year they buy out the remaining, our remaining, our remaining one third of our interests. And uh, at, a, at a valuation that continues to ramp up based on our, uh, our sales level. So, it's been, you know, it's been very successful. And, you know, as the quality has gotten better and better, and today the quality is, I mean, it's fantastic. I, I would put our quality up against any of the stuff that's hundreds of dollars. Now we're coming out with prescription eyewear at a ridiculously low price that destroys Warby Parker's price, for example, and destroys their quality. So 
I, you know, we're, we're headed, we, we have this great upward tra- trajectory and, uh, you know, we're, I don't plan on slowing down anytime soon. Awesome. All right, let's shift gears. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you, you now have, uh, you know, a, a, a grown family, right? You know, you've got, you know, kids at, you know, varying ages and, and so, in some cases, you know, he's starting to probably wrestle with some of the things that, you know, you were, um, you know, as a teenager. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how you have approached fatherhood. Um, you know, I uh, am passionate about this subject because I think a lot of the, what you mentioned and, and, you know, you had amazing parents, but the idea of like, you know, pushing things on children, um, you know, the kind of societal structures or generational expectations, um, you know, I think is a, at times can be difficult for kids um, and for parents. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I observe you to be a really, really engaged, loving, good dad. And I'm curious, you know, kind of how you would describe how you approached being a parent, how you kind of um, both, I guess, I'd like to hear you talk about the balance of being able to achieve as much as you have kind of philosophy or approach to raising your kids. So in terms of balancing work life and professional life, I always made a point of being home for dinner. Very, very rarely did I not somehow get home for dinner. And if my wife was always accommodating, if she needed to move dinner from 6 to 7 or 7.30, as long as it wasn't too late, we always have done family dinner. Always. Since my kids were, you know, since I, since I first got married, my wife and I have always sat down to dinner you know, and obviously with the kids as we've added kids to the brood. Um, I also am always home for Shabbos. So if I travel for business, I would never leave for more than a night, ever. I never, till until today, I've never left for a business trip for more than one night. Maybe one time I left for two nights and I've never been away from my family on a weekend. Mm-hmm. So those hard rules have uh, really, it forces a certain balance right? In terms of professional and personal life. The other thing that forces balance is uh, my religious observance because doing work, you know, checking work emails or being engaged with my coworkers um, on the weekends, right? It's just impossible. And same thing with the holidays. So those two things have really forced uh, real balance uh, between work and uh, professional life. In terms of religious observance and how I treat that with my kids, uh, first and foremost, anything that is related to religious observance or Judaism has to be fun. So we make sure that any experience they're going to have involving Judaism is going to be one that when they're older, they're going to fondly remember it. So Hanukkah at my house is a blast. It's a party for eight straight nights. Uh, Purim, when Queen Esther, you know, saved the Jewish people from the wicked Haman, it's a blast. Um, Passover is a blast. Every holiday with the kids is a high, they, they, they're always excited. When is Passover? When is Passover? You know, the, 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 the praying three times a day and the stuff that's not so much fun. I do it. I don't force them to do it. They want to do it. They can do it. And they do it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't force them to do it. I say, you know, my son wants to sleep in and skip morning services. That's up to him. But, uh, and he does sometimes and I don't say a word, but he gets up and he comes to synagogue and he goes to, you know, he, he prays three times a day and, uh, and 
The girls are way more religious than me. Mm-hmm. It's almost like my kids rebel by being really good. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. <laughs> I feel, I feel the kids, the kids all think I'm a bit of a maniac and the kids all are always trying to temper me down and calm me down. Yeah. So the dynamic is really spectacular. If you come in and you see, uh, if you come in and you see the way things work when we go out to dinner or when we, whatever you, you see like my wife and then there's like four little adults and then there's like one unruly 36 year old child that they're trying to control. Yeah. But you know, I so, think that's like actually, you know, for, for, from the outside in, and I'm sure, you know, it's like you said, a blessing and a curse for Ida, but the outside in, I think it's like really, really important that there's a child at the table, especially one that's an adult, because the kids need to understand that life doesn't have to be so serious and intense and that fun, you know, and really making it fun is important. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that's, that's part of why I enjoy, you know, being with you. I think it's part of why you're successful um, in your business. You know, people think it's fun to be working with you. And I think it's part of why, you know, your kids, uh, it's no question, they will remember, you know, the, the fun, uh, even, even if it was, you know, crazy and at times embarrassing, uh, that's going to be really memorable and impactful for them. I mean, you just, you only live once. You can't take yourself too seriously. You know, when you're older, you want your kids to say, my dad was always present to talk to me when I needed to speak about something. He was, he was around for all the important things, but he was a lot of fun. Like he never, I don't want my kids remembering, you know what I mean? And and, and look, I think the same thing is true with your marriage too. You know, you're married for a long time. Uh, You got to constantly keep shit fun. You know, you can't, you don't want to take, you don't want to take things too seriously, which is why, you know, I'm sitting here in my interview, you can see the mirrors on my, on my ceiling, you know, we keep shit interesting here. (laughs) Oh God. I, that's perfect. Uh, I gotta, I gotta end right there. David, I love you. I love you. I love you. Um, anything you uh, you want to conclude with any kind of plugs or final thoughts or anything you want to share? You know, the only, the only thing I'll say is when it comes to investing and it comes to business, uh, I hate cliches, but you know, they always, Michael Jordan always says, I've missed so many more shots than I've made and all that kind of stuff. If you're someone who is an aspiring entrepreneur or you're someone who's looking to become an entrepreneur or you're, you're in the throes of it, please know that failure is a must and it's going to happen and you're going to run into hurdles and you're going to have times when you want to throw the towel. And if you don't have those times, then you're not, you're, you're not really going through it, right? You're definitely going to have those moments where, when you want to, oh, this is too hard. There's, the grass is greener on the other side. I'm going to go pursue something else. Anything worth building, anything worth anything takes a lot of blood, pain, sweat, and tears. So please don't look at someone you know, I, I've had a couple of successful exits. I've had a lot of things that did not work out, that didn't pan out, things that I've had to learn from. And um, I just think it's important to keep that in mind because I think it can be discouraging if you're looking at these successful people and you're thinking, oh, they're kicking ass. What's, what's, what's wrong with what I'm doing? You know what? It, it, 
everyone goes through that and everyone has those challenges and you just got to keep pushing pushing through and pushing ahead. Yeah. You'll, you'll get to where you want to go if you don't stop. That's great. That's great advice. And, you know, I think, you know, just in reflecting on your story, having success early could make the failures hard too, right? You know, the idea yeah. that you yeah. don't, you know, you're known to be successful. You don't want to lose that. Um, and so, you know, kind of continuing just to go through it, regardless of kind of the sequence of success and failure, just knowing both are going to be there and you got to keep going. It's great advice. Yeah. So awesome. David, thank you again. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Our pleasure. Good to see you, buddy. Take care. Sam, I love the cage. I will. Talk to you soon. Likewise. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.